Welcome to The Future of Antitrust, a series produced by BYU Law School's Global Business Law Program. Hope you enjoyed lunch. So we're going to now have a, uh, what, I, what I think will be a, a great panel with a real, really all-star lineup um, of, of practitioners. Um, and so law, antitrust law, in the trenches. So let me briefly introduce um, everyone. Um, I've already introduced Paul, our moderator. So um, Paul was my colleague at BYU Law um, a short time ago before that, University of Illinois. Um, so a tenured professor goes back into law practice um, doing antitrust law. So we're excited to have Paul join us today. Um, to my immediate left is Mark Busey. Um, he's the SVP, Head of Global Government Relations and Policy and Match Group, and IAC. Um, grateful to have you, Mark, to, to join us. Um, Amanda Reeves. Uh, Mandy uh, is a partner in Latham Watkins Litigation and Child Department and serves as Global Chair of the Antitrust and Competition Practice at the firm. Uh, Ms. Reeves uh, routinely advised clients on novel antitrust litigations before the FTC and DOJ. Um, Global Competition Review, uh, the world's leading antitrust publication, recently named her Lawyer of the Year for uh, 2021. Um, and Ms. Reeves previously served as attorney advisor to Commissioner J. Thomas uh, Roche at the Federal Trade Commission, um, active member of the American Bar Association. Association's antitrust section, um, where she serves as the section's governing uh, council and chairs the annual Law and Economics Institute for Judges, a four-day intensive training program which trains federal judges in antitrust law and economics. Um, so Ryan Shores, next to Mandy, uh, he's a partner in the antitrust uh, and litigation practices at Sherman Sterling. Um, represents clients across all industries in antitrust and other complex litigation, the trial and the appellate levels in federal and state courts. Uh, Ryan recently served as Associate Deputy Attorney General and Senior Advisor for Technology Industries at the US, US Department of Justice. In that role, Ryan uh, oversaw the department's antitrust review of major online platforms leading to the government's landmark monopolization case filed against Google in 2020. Um, Ryan was a law clerk to the late Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and, and Judge Kenneth F. Ripple of the U.S. Courts of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Um, Alicia Batts is, is next to Ryan on his left. Um, Ms. Batts is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Fager Drinker. Um, she has extensive experience representing clients in all types of antitrust matters in a multitude of business uh, sectors. Um, including before the antitrust enforcement agencies, state authorities, international bodies. Um, she's been doing competition law um, for 30 plus years, including a two-year tenure as an attorney advisor to an FTC commissioner. Um, she has served as vice chair in the American Bar Association's antitrust section and is a former editor of the Antitrust Law Journal. Um, and oh, and I already introduced Paul. So I'll let I'll let you guys take over and uh, look forward to it. Thank you, Clark. We have a fantastic, very likely energetic panel. Uh, as, at lunch, we got to hear from David Lawrence and get a perspective from DOJ. And uh, I think we're just going to start 
open things up. We have a very lengthy agenda. So I'm just going to start with a question and uh, whoever wants to take it. Um, first thing we're going to be talking about uh, across multiple sort of subdisciplines of antitrust. What are some of the substantive developments in antitrust lately that's keep, that, that are keeping you up at night? Uh, and let's start with maybe uh, Section 7 of the Clayton Act and Section 5 of the FTC Act. And I can pick someone at the I'm, I'm happy to start. It's keeping me up at night, not so much because I think I'm terribly worried, but because there's just so much to do. Um, so I think the, you know, the main somewhat obvious development on Section 7 is we're litigating a lot more cases. There used to be, you know, a couple a year and the DOJ um, will have, be litigating four cases over the course of August and September alone, uh, in addition to another one earlier this year. Um, and so, it, it, you know, anytime you're litigating cases, you get new law, which is, uh, which is I always think is a good, good thing, um, particularly when it's, you know, fa favorable to your side. Um, but I think the main developments in terms of what is coming out of those cases are probably threefold. Um, one is more law on remedies and litigating the fix. A main feature of several of the cases that have been litigated is that the parties put forth remedies, two of them, Illumina Grail, um, which my firm was involved in, and then the United Health Optum case. Both were cases where the parties put forward fixes in a vertical context, and those were viewed favorably by the ALJ and district court judge, respectively. Um, and then a and then an ongoing case um, that Ryan and I are involved in, there was an aspect of that as well. Um, so I think remedies is one. Two is market definition, um, which is a common feature of horizontal merger litigation. But I think we're going to continue to see um, more on that. Um, the United Sugar Imperial Sugar um, merger, um, which my, my firm is involved in, had uh, you know a, a 50 page or so decision released recently with some um, you know a lot of law and market definition. Um, and then uh, last but not least, um, uh, um, well, vertical cases, vertical issues. Um, we talked about remedies a minute ago, but vertical issues, I think those, there are a lot more of those cases that I think may be litigated. We'll see if we continue on the current path because those are the cases that would be resolved with behavioral remedies. And if behavioral remedies, or maybe at the DOJ, all remedies, but if behavioral remedies are out of style, that means we're probably going to be litigating more vertical cases. Um, and I think the law on that thus far has not been cutting in the government's favor, so there may be more law on that. So I think those are a few things I'm seeing on, on Section 7. But, you know, definitely, definitely a lot more trial experience for all involved in all sides of the bar. That's maybe the biggest takeaway. <laughs> and I think with Section 5, um, we're definitely seeing the FTC trying to expand how Section 5 has been used over the last 30 years. Um, and, you know, when you talk about unfair competition, that's very broad. And some of their cases make clear that they'll be bringing cases that would not typically be successful under the Sherman or Clayton Act. So it'll be interesting to watch the development of that law, particularly since the case law, um, you're, they're gonna have to push the boundaries of, case, of the case law. And I, I think even in some of the recent losses, for example, in the labor context, the DOJ has been making law that's positive for them, even though they're losing the case, particularly in the labor context. And so I think that both agencies will continue to pursue actions, um, whether they win or lose, because they think it's right and they want to make 
new law. And even if they don't make new law, um, it, it will temper the market if parties know that they will have to litigate or are likely to litigate. Yeah, one thing I would add building on what Mandy said is, I think it's interesting from a market perspective because a lot of these cases are really hinging on the idea of how narrowly is the government gonna be able to draw the market and show harm in that market. And the cases I've been involved in, a lot of that's around the construct of price discrimination markets. You're seeing that more and more, even to the point of having one, one customer, price discrimination with respect to one customer. And I think, over time, we're going to see some cases on this concept, and there will need to be some more analytical thinking about what does that really mean, a price discrimination market, or is all we're saying is that certain customers are different from other customers, and why does that matter, really, from a competition perspective? But I think a lot of these cases that we're seeing, a lot of them we're going to see going forward are how broad can I draw the market on the defense side? You know, if you're a defense lawyer versus how narrowly can DOJ draw the market? And what are the analytical tools that you get that courts rely on to get you there? I mean, we have the SNP test, price discrimination, brown shoe, but they're all getting at this same idea that there's something different about one or a set of customers. And that's where the battle line is often drawn in these cases. Yeah. Oh, I'd just say I, that I think Ryan's observation is a great one because the idea of price discrimination markets and customer markets is definitely something that got more traction um, in the 2010 um, horizontal merger guidelines. Um, you know, the case law, I think, has sort of been dancing around the topic to some extent, but typically when the DOJ has brought or the FTC have brought price discrimination cases, they have been, you know, sort of you know, large national customers and office products or, you know, large corporations in the insurance context, but, but sort of des describing, you know, categories of customers. So I think, you know, over the last decade, when folks have thought about price discrimination, they have thought about in terms of large categories of customers, but it has definitely been a feature of the cases that I've been involved in over the last year. And then also investigations, I think Ryan's spot on, it's sort of see how far we can push that idea of price discrimination and how narrow we can make it. And I do think there'll be more law on that as a result. So I just add this, as a non-lawyer, <laughs> um, I couldn't even get into law school. I do think, you know, from a political standpoint, the, the sort of strict interpretation of market definitions are going to be addressed, is being addressed, globally, not just within the U.S. context. Um, I think clearly this FTC that currently exists is self-affirmatively oh. self proactive, and the chair has an agenda she intends to pursue regardless. Um, and so I think that all, has to, all also plays into what happens next and how this works. So what, thank you, all of you. Uh, so what about if we move on to section two and dominant firm conduct? Any, any thoughts on where we're headed there? What, what trends you see in litigation, investigations? Yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, again, to me, a lot of these cases are gonna come down back to the market definition question. I mean, a lot of these platforms, you've got a lot of single brand market arguments out there and a lot of Kodak, 
type arguments of lock-in being made. But the fundamental question is, you know, again, how do you look at the competitive effects and what work is market definition really doing to inform that? But as a matter of case law, that's a gating item. So when we litigate these cases, I'm involved in one right now, you know, the question is whether a judge is going to let you pass the threshold element on this market definition, you know, question. And I think a lot of these cases are going to rise and fall on the question of, you know, is, is it plausibly pled that there is just, you know, one platform is itself a quote unquote market. Now, a lot of people push back at that and say that's a formalistic view, maybe what you were alluding to before. And is that necessary to go through that analysis? Because it looks like maybe there's some competitive effects here. But as a matter of the law stands right now, that's where a lot of it's being litigated because that's, you know, the threshold step we've established in section two. And that's what I'm seeing. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, Epic v. Apple's told us something about it, but I think we have a lot more cases to come on that. Yeah, I also think in the, the section two context, the Ryan sort of picked up on monopoly power, but if you sort of look at the evolution of the section two law, right? Section one law, we've got per se, rule of reason, the decisional blender, you sort of go into one lane or the other and you, you know, proceed. With, with section two, the way the law has evolved post-Grinnell with the conduct-specific test for um, loyalty discounts, predatory pricing, you know, abuse of a patent position and the like, um, you've got all these common law standards. And I think one of the things that um, plaintiffs and the government are grappling with, and also on the defense side, when you're analyzing and counseling conduct that doesn't easily fit into one of those boxes, is sort of where the law is going to go. We have the sort of grand formulation from Microsoft, which is, you know, functionally sort of a rule of reason-esque standard. Um, but for the most part, there hasn't been a lot of application of that to new categories of conduct. Most of the litigation as of late has been sort of um, loyalty discounts versus exclusive dealing and what are the standards there. So I, that would, to me, be one area that I think would be interesting to watch and where I would expect to see more activity if you can get past sort of the threshold question of whether a firm has monopoly power, but are they engaged in exclusionary conduct? And what is the standard that governs that, particularly if we're, we're looking at, you know, new conduct by, by firms or old conduct by firms, but that now someone wants to characterize as anti-competitive what do you do with the monopoly broth course of conduct? How does that work as a matter of law and economics? Um, you know, maybe there'll be some new economic thinking in that context, but I, I would expect to see more evolution of the law sort of in the exclusionary conduct, um, you know, sphere as well. Well, I think that's where section five can come in because there's definitely a significant amount of conduct that you arguably could um, take action against using section five that you could not using section two. So I would expect, um, especially with the current administration, I would expect for the FTC to pursue some of these um, theories under section five. And then the because they don't have the same threshold issues to get over that you have to with section two. And then it becomes a question of how courts interpret that and whether courts essentially say that 
the case law on section two is applicable to section five. And there are some older cases and some not so old where the FTC has used its section five authority successfully um, for quote, unfair competition or things that are, you know, it's almost like the, the whole section five is so broad when you're talking about unfair competition, but um, it has been used effectively to get at anti-competitive conduct, which I say loosely, that could not be achieved under section two. And I think that also when discussing the how you think the law is going to develop, there are two issues. One is the policy and the other is the case law. And so I think the policy is shifting faster than the case law. And I think most people would agree with that. And with the exception of major US corporations or big tech, which is what this panel is about, most of the time when policy shifts, behavior in the market shifts, because most companies do not wanna be embroiled in huge litigations that cost millions and millions of dollars, unless it's really going to end your business where it's a deal that's essential to your growth. So I do think that the policy shift is impacting the market and that um, we need to separate when we're talking about changes in policy versus changes in law as in case law. And if the policy shifts enough and the cases are lost enough, we might see changes in the law, which there are many, many bills right now. Yeah, many all over the globe. <laughs> um, I also think, you know, the definition of market is changing rapidly and tech is making that forcing courts, regulators to look at what is the definition. Uh, you know, you can look at any number of the big tech and say, yes, there's still plenty of traditional competition. But in reality, there isn't. I mean, as I say all, all the time, there's only two platforms that exist that everybody in this room uses. 10 years ago, there were five. Mind you, most of those were not popular. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still miss my Blackberry and the platform. <clears throat> but the definition has to change to adapt. And it has to change as well as how you look at what is the definition of the market, not just that you carry a phone on a platform or you use Amazon to buy all of your products. It, I think it really what's going to have to be decided and is in the process of happening is are both the users being locked in to some sort of walled garden where yes, they can in a pure vacuum leave the garden at any time, but is that walled garden designed to create friction? And any friction is a lot when it comes to tech in the modern world. And that's where I think you have both legislation moving in the US ever so slowly, um, vintage US, but you know, DMA in Europe, um, individual countries within the EU now trying to do a, their own law regarding competition. 
Um, and then just even globally, various countries around, around the globe acted in this area. Yeah, so I think, um, so picking up on Mark and Alicia's point, so we sort of began by talking about the Sherman Act and the law, there is what it is. So then you've got section five, which is an academic conference. I always describe section five to a junior associate as like the ninth amendment of antitrust law. <laughs> like nobody knows what to do with it. It's so ill-defined and broad. So we're just gonna like let it hang out and touch it every 20 years and spook it and see what happens. And you know, the case law on section five you know, I mean, it's very broad, but the case law, even at the Supreme Court, I mean, I guess there's something for everyone, but it's not a total blank slate for the FTC. And the, the you know, the federal appellate trilogy from the 80s is not great. And so, of course, the, you know, I could certainly see the FTC trying to litigate around that and go to, you know, new circuits and the like. And But that would almost, that, that puts them in a, um, they've sort of got a, a problem to solve for, right? Because the the purpose of section five in the FTC is to make law at the FTC. If you sort of go to the purest form of why the FTC exists, they bring cases, the ALJ decides something, it comes up to the commission, which is this expert body opines on the law in the first instance, right? This is like literally why the FTC is created because the DOJ is off, you know, not in the courts aren't, you know, being aggressive enough. But the problem is that if, if a party loses at the FTC, they get to pick where they appeal to. So if you lose a section five case, you're gonna like probably go to like the second circuit, right? Cause there's good law there. So this may mean that the FTC starts bringing section five cases in district court, I don't know, but then it sort of calls into the question, the reason for the FTC's being. So you got that. <laughs> and then you've got sort of new antitrust laws, but where I would actually go with your comment is say, maybe we just need to say, we're gonna like regulate tech and regulate tech as opposed to like trying to wrap it around antitrust law. Because I can make a lot of arguments about how like I was teaching UVA on Monday and was recalling sitting in the second row of the, I was sat the second row because it acted like you were engaged, but you weren't the door to sat the first row. And, and remembered the first time I met, you know, an iPod in a, in a law school classroom, you know, 20 years ago. And I you can have a vigorous debate about sort of what the success of this is, but I don't think everybody would stipulate it's anti-competitive conduct. And there's a lot of innovation that has happened that has, has led to that. But, you know, if, if you believe there are big platforms and they need to be regulated, there may be other basis to do that, but but maybe the focus should be less on antitrust law. So I do think there's going to be a lot playing out as to which lane, but the common law lanes are pretty clogged up at the moment, I think, with law. And then, and then there's also the fact that Alicia's comment, I think, is really interesting thinking about the tension between policy and law, because policy is way out there pushing the envelope, but at a certain point, it's going to collide with the Supreme Court, which I do not think <laughs> shares the view of sort of the enforcers right now at all. And, you know, maybe that's the point, right, is to create law that's bad so that you show that you need new laws, which I gather is sort of the, the moment in history we're in. But anyway, a lot of different ways we can go. Yeah, just picking up on the point about Section 5 and the standard. You know, it's it's fine to say we want to broaden that, but what are the what are the boundaries? What are the tools that you litigate? Judges like putting things in boxes, mm -hmm. right? I mean, they want they don't want to just make it up and have economists have a debate and then say, voila, something's unfair. Um, they're just not comfortable with that. And so, what do you tether it to to make a decision? And I think it is a 
challenge for this position that unfair methods of competition are going to be the new wave to say, well, what does that really mean? And what do we anchor that to? We have these bodies of law out there. And when you go before a court and a judge, they want to tether it to something, you know, they want some standards in which to put it. And I think the question is, how do you get to this kind of broader standard since we have these others that anchor you to something? Well, I think, I think two things on well, so first of all, I do think that regulating big tech is certainly in the minds of certain policy people that run U.S. antitrust right now. <laughs> so so I, I don't think that big tech uh, regulations are off the table. And um, I guess closely following both statements written and oral by, by uh, the FTC, there would be some that argue that the, that that there is precedent for a broader interpretation of section five and that what is abnormal is what we've done in the last 30 years um, by having it more narrowly defined and, and, and aligned with uh, section two. And that's why there was a statement that was, that was put out about you know, not enforcing it beyond the scope, mm -hmm. which was repealed. So, you know, there's, there's a lot going on That's why on this there. is the most exciting time in what, the, like the last 50 yeah. years to be an antitrust lawyer. Cause we've got like law and we've got- It's a like, relatively low bar, but it is- Right? No, I think it's great. <laughs> By my count, I've let y'all go for 12 minutes just on that question. Oh, so that's, sorry. Uh, no, it's fantastic. Go 20 more minutes. I know, <laughs> and that's, that's exciting. Um, and in fact, so exciting that the two questions I was going to ask to sort of wrap up the section seven, section two uh, com a component, I will go ahead and leave up alone for now. Uh, I want, before we get into what Mandy uh, delightfully called the decisional blender of uh, section one, I did wanna just, I'm gonna circle back to one thing that's mostly a market, a market, I'm sorry, a, a, a merits story in, in the merger context. And that is what are you seeing in, in terms of competitive effects theories? In the merger context, when you're seeing mergers that are being challenged or investigated, what 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 seems to be the flavor of the day right now? Uh, I would say there's a lot of flavors, okay. um, <laughs> but one of the main flavors is this incentives idea that's been litigated, and you know I think people have been following the decisions. They um, courts are saying that you have to look at all of the incentives together and then making a judgment about which way those incentives point. I think by and large, the government has not been successful in those cases or has not been successful in those cases. Um, but you know that is the main one that has been litigated to date is this idea of incentive. Um, and I think DOJ starts with a theory or the FTC about what the incentive is. And then the challenge on the defense side is to broaden that, you know, right. and think about more broadly, where do those incentives lead you? Um, so it'll be interesting to see where the agencies go with that in light of some of the decisions, um, which have not been favorable on that theory at this point to the government. Over the last couple of years, I, in a couple matters I've been involved in, I've seen coordinated effects sort of come out of nowhere at the 11th hour. And I think it's because they are trying to bring cases in less consolidated markets under the premise of a price discrimination or a targeted customer theory. But there are, you know, more than two or three competitors remaining post-transaction. So the, the unilateral effects theory isn't quite, I think, holding up as strongly as, as the government would like. So I do think there is a greater search for coordinated effects and there isn't as much law 
there. Um, so that might be another area where there might be more. I mean, those, you know, there, there's been some litigation around coordinated effects, but for the most part, the cases from the last 10 years have been very unilateral effects focused. Um, so I, you know, there may be a greater focus on that too. And I do think they represent the reality of what, what is changing and happening, especially within tech. They, they just don't. They don't know how to, the courts and the regulators don't know what to look at and how to compare whether you have control of a market or not, or whether a result of a merger is going to be bad, because they tend to look myopically at, well, this is what you do, therefore you are a social media company, whatever that the definition of the day is. So there's this huge swath of companies that fall into that they don't really compete against each other because they worked in entirely separate niches or you know different silos and, and that has to be sorted out over time well i think what it, one thing that i've noticed um with recent cases brought in the last year year and a half since people got settled is i think people are bringing cases um that are likely that they're that they are unlikely to win, but they're making arguments and making good law along the way. Um, and I think there's less of a focus on economic analysis to prove your antitrust case, because a lot of these cases you can't are, are, are challenging when you look at the economic analysis. Okay, thank you. Um, so next thing we're going to talk about, we're going to, I'd like, actually, I want to, I'm going to go ahead and one more sort of, what are you seeing in new developments? And it's, it's something we've talked about already today in a panel, privacy, uh, and multiple panels, I guess. Um, what do you see? Because at the intersection of antitrust and privacy that is, uh, that is giving you either, you know, concerns or at least a, of interest and should be of interest to our audience. I'll, let me, I'll say, I'll say this about privacy. Um, GDPR, everybody loves it. Yay. I was just over in France in the presidential office, not with Macron, but with, <laughs> and very first thing they said is GDPR is a disaster. Everybody clicks through. It has zero effect. The only entities that have been able to utilize it are the biggest of the big, um, France is, would love a way out. I was in the UK and I'm, during those miraculous 44 days of the prime minister. Um, and they were like, you know, Brexit was such a good thing. One of the reasons we're not in GDPR, but effectively you are still. Um, so when you look at privacy that way, it hasn't none of these laws have achieved what the authors want. <clears throat> They've created just dynamics around cases and suing and it's thrown safety issues into jeopardy, all sorts of ancillary sides of the issue that nobody thinks about. And it, it's just gonna continue as long as, you know, we're on this sort of rush to preserve everything as safety or, or privacy um you know it's becoming a bigger issue in the u.s but 
and I don't know if anybody represents Apple, um, it's a selling technique for Apple. I'm not befaulting them, it's a brilliant selling technique for Apple. Just focus on privacy. But when you do more and more of this, especially if you go to end-to-end -end encryption, repercussions are very negative and, and long-term. So I think comparing and contrasting privacy with competition law, like competition law, we've been at it for like over a century. We've been at global coordination for like 50 years. And privacy, just because of tech and how fast it has come up, we sort of like with GDPR, just skipped all that, went to the end, enacted a statute. And now we're like, oh, maybe it's hard to do it that way, right? Which is funny, because now with the antitrust and competition law, we're trying to like rewrite the law. But at least there, you've got a century of learning. So, you know, for, from, from my perspective in day-to-day -day competition law, I don't see privacy questions. I don't see the intersection coming up as much, but I know it is, I've heard from folks that it's happening. I know the FTC is, I've heard exploring it. Um, you know, certainly questions with big data inherently bring up privacy, but I'm not sure that those are privacy cases per se, as opposed to cases where there is, you know, a legitimate question as to whether or not big data creates market power and are there knock-on effects on privacy, but those are just other effects in addition to having market or monopoly power over a, a set of big data. Um, so, so far, I don't think U.S. competition enforcers have really melded the two, but I do think from a global standpoint on privacy, just from like institutional design and experience, there hasn't been the effort to sort of coordinate. I mean, that you can, you can, you know, as someone on the defense side, say, say whatever you want about where we are at this point, you know, very aggressive, bringing lots of cases, trying to win, lose, whatever. But one thing the government, U.S. government has done, I think, historically extremely well is coordinate with other jurisdictions and trying to advance sort of historically, you know, the U.S.'s way of thinking. And, you know, there's competition among competition enforcers, but there has been a coordination in the development of law. And I think privacy, it's just, it's coming like much more haphazardly. And I think there could be, you know, just implications for how effective it is as a result. Yeah, I was, you know, your comment struck me about Apple competing on the basis of privacy, because I was watching TV the other day and WhatsApp has an ad. I don't know if you've <laughs> yeah, seen it about, you know, use WhatsApp because it's privacy, you know, into, into encryption. In that sense, it's an element of competition. Mm -hmm. So I think the interesting thing is, and why I think we'll see this play out in some of the cases, to what extent are the courts going to embrace the idea that a degradation of privacy, either as a result of conduct or, you know, some type of merger, is an actionable theory. Yeah. Um, and I think the more you see companies lean into it as an element of competition, the more palatable I think that's going to be in the view of judges who are going to say, oh, well, you're competing on that basis. So therefore, that is one of the things that can be affected. And it's been interesting to me that that is something that the companies now are really, it seems, leaning into. Mm -hmm. um, as an, I don't know if you're seeing that with Matt specifically, but yeah. certainly WhatsApp and um, um, you know, others, Apple particularly, have really leaned into that as an element of competition. I think that's going to push, you know, courts to look at it as, as something that could be affected by the antitrust analysis. Well, I, I think since, uh, I guess, probably in the early 2000s was the first time that the FTC started looking at privacy um, and competition and the intersectionality. 
when they put out some reports going back to the early 2000s and had a position, uh, they had a person that was working um, both in the Bureau of Competition and in the Bureau of Consumer Protection to look at that. And so they've been working on that issue, but I haven't seen a lot of activity the way that I've seen it in the European Union and other jurisdictions. Um, and so I do think um, that that's something that is not, that's been developed kind of, you know, with the US belonging to the OECD and having privacy commissioners and things like that, that's really been much more on the consumer protection side. So I would expect to see growth in, in and development in that area. I will know that privacy has arrived as an antitrust theory when we see someone arguing that it's actually a positive efficiency in a merger. Mm -hmm. um, so that, but uh, I want to, we're going to change gears now, something we've been nibbling around the edges at for a while. And Alicia, I'm going to start with you because you made the comment that sort of, sort of earlier that serves as a perfect transition here. We're going to talk a little bit about institutional changes or institutional mm -hmm. direction, uh, recognizing that we have some enforcers in the audience or have had. Um, but I want to talk about something that, that, has struck me as I've, I've seen people who maybe represent client profiles that differ either from my current client profile or from the uh, client profiles that I've had in the past in different previous lives. Um, so what this, you've heard the term, the process is the punishment. What about the process is the policy? It is, and so like, for example, a lot of people miss the FTC's change in, um, first of all, prior approval and the repeal of that, that has a huge impact on merging parties to think about having to get approval from the FTC for future transactions. And what it says is that it says in that market, but then there's all this other language about how the FTC, if they deem that you were somehow you know, you've had other consents, which most big companies have come up or other issues mm -hmm. that they may ask for prior approval beyond the scope of your current transaction. So I think for companies that are worried about that, that are thinking about doing a deal that may raise competitive concerns, I, I really think that that's like uh, de definitely putting a freeze on the market the aggressiveness against private equity means that you have to do a lot more work, but beforehand you've got to check all the, you know, all of the other companies much more closely that they've invested in or maybe majority shareholders. Um, it's just been a whole series of things that slow down the market, plus changing the policy so that one commissioner can um, do compulsory process allows allows each commissioner to have, for want of a better word, um, investigations into areas where they may have an interest and other commissioners don't. And before the agency, you had to have a majority vote. So there were more eyes or agreement on the necessity for an investigation. So I think definitely changes in policy. And there's been a lot of changes like DOJ not wanting to enter into consents and rather litigating. Um, I think those sorts of things put a chill on transactions and make companies think uh, much longer about whether they want to go forward with a transaction that may be legal or may, I mean, it may present issues, but still be legal. 
there might be some of those types of transactions that are not pursued at this moment in time. Three word answer, elections have consequences. <laughs> I think that um, just picking up on Alicia's comment, the, the biggest impact I see is on small, smaller businesses um, and their willingness or desire or ability to do M&A. Um, so what I tell clients is assume everything takes longer. Something that might not used to get a call gets a call, right? That's not a bad thing. I think things should be investigated if there are issues to explore. Um, but things that would get cleared in 30 days, like a pull and refile is, is, is almost expected now. I mean, when I began practicing, that was like, you were like almost a bad antitrust lawyer if you fell for that trick. And now you look like a bad antitrust lawyer. If it's not the norm, you look crazy aggressive, right? And then like, of course, nobody wants an unnecessary second request. Things that used to, you know, go through second requests and sort of fizzle are more likely to have, you know, small explosions at the end. You know, we're more likely to litigate a fix as opposed to take one. So I think everything takes longer. I think for big companies, that means more legal fees, more economic fees, more data hosting, storage, vendor fees, but they're willing to put up with that. But I definitely see implications for smaller businesses, um, startups, you know, who don't have, a, you know, a, a startup pharmaceutical company doesn't have a commercial arm. Like they're not equipped to do that. Their exit strategy is to sell to, to big pharma. That's what spurs innovation. But if you say to a client, like the price of doing this deal might be, you know, nine months, if you're lucky, you need, you know, to be ready to litigate, even though I think it's very defensible, 18 months of dwindling out there, all the associated fees, you know, high degree of confidence, but no lawyer's ever going to say certain, right? It's, it's scary. And so I think there is most likely and most significantly, I think the risk of a chilling effect on smaller businesses and then just generally, a, you know, a tax on bigger corporations. But I think that is the intended effect with the bigger corporations, but I don't know that it has the chilling effect there so much as it really does on the smaller companies, because at least in the U.S., we have sort of the litigation backstop. So if you believe in the legal validity of your position and you can fund it through the end of that process, you know, then you, you're willing to fight it, but smaller companies can't, can't do that. Although companies of really even size, they get any size, they get tired of it over time. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think there's a difference between process that's intended to better enable companies to find deals that violate the law and enforce those and process intended to itself be the law <laughs> and kill a deal. And I think our system is not set up such that process should be used to go beyond what the law allows. We could have a debate about what the law should allow or should not allow, and that's fine. And, um, but when you use process to substitute for deals that otherwise don't violate the law, that to me goes you know, beyond basic principles of fairness and what the rule of law is. And I think that's where you get into some, some troubling questions. And it really does go to, to your point that if you're a medium or smaller company, you simply can't afford that time and money and even internal bandwidth. Um, the, largest, the largest companies, they have that built into their budget now. I mean, it's just already built into the price. So it really does have a dampening effect on smaller companies. I've, I'm seeing... Uh, significant changes in the way that hell or high water clauses are being drafted. 
Um, and especially in, in that sort of what I would call the, I don't know if it's magic or if it's, it's of the opposite of magic, whatever that is, but the, that zone where the, the transaction value is 105 million and you have to report, but they're not, uh, this is not a, uh, you know, mega company. And I'm seeing, you know, where we may not even have a hell of a water cause because you're actually saying we just get to leave under any circumstances if we get investigated at all. Um, okay, thank you for that. And uh, I mean, I think we can continue on any other institutional changes in approach or experiences that you're having. Um, again, no specific matters mentioned, but anything that you see at the federal agencies, uh, but I can also expand that to uh, two other questions, right? One, what's going on at the EU? Who's leading the charge? What, where are the institutional sort of vibes coming from, uh, nationally and internationally? Well, I think in the, in, in the US, second requests are getting a whole line of questions that historically um, were not there and that weren't really considered under uh, antitrust theory. So I think that is changing. They're taking more time to collect the data. You're asking for information often that is surprising to clients who may not follow antitrust as closely as the people in this room. So they're surprised um, at the at some of the questions, which it's not that it doesn't really harm anything. It's just more time, more money, and more collection of data that some companies don't really have readily available. Um, so I think that's a change. And then because the world is becoming more globalized and certainly in the area of technology, um, tech platforms are global. I think the fact that there are different approaches to competition around the globe um, complicates when you're counseling about compli regulatory compliance and what you can do. And some, it's somewhat daunting to have different rules in different jurisdictions. And I think for, for the US, we are historically have been leaders and now um, many other jurisdictions have more aggressive rules and have certainly been, um, I don't know if I want to use the word tougher or demanding more of big tech. Maybe we'll say it that way. Yeah, I think there's a lot more aggressive action around the globe. Um, India, CCI, their competition bureau published their first of what I think are going to be three or four decisions around Google yesterday and the rest all by Tuesday um, that are pretty scathing and also goes to the fact that Google refused to give them information around basic economics. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot more of this. Obviously, DMA legally goes into effect in November 2023. They have, you have the gatekeeper standards and what happens there. But when you talk to DG Comp or DG Connect, they're very clear that they have essentially begun these investigations already under existing powers that they have and existing complaints because... There are a lot of them, and Match has complained uh, about uh, app distribution in a variety of venues around the globe. Um, but it's also taught us that there there is a lot more aggressive behavior. Some of it 
much more like the DMA, which will take years to sort itself out, establish that case law, et cetera. But there are other jurisdictions that are moving much more rapidly, India, um, Mexico now, um, South Africa could potentially adopt a whole new regulatory regime um, by the mid to end of November. And, and the, a lot of that is being driven by just pure economics, right? If you are the country in a region, South Africa, let's say, and you can convince everybody to move there because you can build out, you can be a small or medium-sized company and protect it under the law, it's to your, your advantage. And because of everything being so globalized, like you said, where you actually sit doesn't matter so much anymore. I mean, it simply doesn't. So it, the world is changing and it's changing fast. I do think the US is really behind on this. Um, I don't think that is a sustainable position for the US. I mean, State Department, USTR has argued, no, no, countries don't do this. You're targeting just US companies. They're not, I mean, they, they really aren't. They're targeting monopol monopolies, most of whom happen to be US, but it's not a politically driven decision as far as you know, being anti or pro US. So I do think we're gonna see some much more rapid change and if the U.S. doesn't act, we will essentially be accepting probably the European EU DMA standard, which we, you know, look, for my company match, we, we think it's hugely important, seminal event, but at the same time, the U.S. seldom replicates EU standards. So I, I just leave it at that. So I guess the other big development of the last couple of years um, like a risk assessment back, back on that, but you have US, European Commission, and then probably China, and, and then everything else. And um, like while we were all working at home, the CMA got its own slide. Um, uh, and, 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 and rightfully slow if you're doing a proper risk assessment. Um, and I think part of that is because of, um, you know, some of its, um, first they like hired like what, 200, 300 new people. Um, and part of the issue, I think the U.S. Um, enforcers do have is resources, right? You can only do so much with the hardworking bodies that you have, but the CMA like doubled its size overnight, set itself on a post-Brexit agenda, but also just broadened its jurisdiction. And then similarly in Illumina Grail, you know, you see the, the EC sort of reaching in, you know, the Article 21 referral process. And so I, I think part of that is an effort to, you know, lead and be ahead beyond yeah. the U.S. And so and again, this sort of gets to the, you know, the due process framework that we have in the U.S. with the the Article Three backstop that you don't really so much have in these other jurisdictions, or you do, but sort of three years later, after it's sort of a flip, right? The conduct is declared unlawful, and you're barred, and then you can sort of deal with the appellate process for four years and various, 
entities in the US, it's it's fairly different. And then just the law is more favorable um, to companies for the most part under existing antitrust law. So I, I do think some of that, I mean, to me, the CMA is by far the biggest shift of the last couple of years. And I think the ECs, you know, I would never say the EC is not aggressive. It's plenty aggressive, but <laughs> but CMA is is like out, out there where, where it can be. So I'm going to go ahead and just sort of move us along a little bit because I realize I have 10 agenda items left and not 10 uh, agenda <laughs> items worth of time. Uh, but I do want one more institutional question, sort of what are you seeing in the context of state AGs and state enforcement uh, and uh, the extent to which it is either wedded to or has sort of uh, effectuated a divorce from federal antitrust enforcement? Um, yeah, I'm happy to comment on that. I think in some ways the state AGs are way out ahead of the federal enforcers, particularly on some of these tech theories. And, you know, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing depends on your perspective. But I think there's no question that they follow a quicker investigative model and feel more free to bring cases. So as a functional matter, what that means is they are going to be developing the law in these areas if the federal you know, agencies aren't with them or out in front of them bringing cases. Um, and you know, there, are, there are very smart state AGs on some of these antitrust issues, Phil Weiser, um, others out there who know the area. Um, and then some you know, that people say no less and are pushing theories that go beyond what they think are accurate. But I think what is not debatable is that they really are out in front on a lot of these issues and developing the law, particularly on, on the big tech issues. Now they've shown some willingness in the merger space to go different space, you know, go beyond where DOJ or the FTC is. But I think where the mark will largely be, will be felt is on the big tech issues. Completely agree. Um, you know, everybody, from a corporate perspective, ran to justice, um, but justice, DOJ is just too slow. Uh, I'll say FTC tends to just, depending on who's president, the political winds guide, the state AGs are really able to unite and, and act. I mean, what they've done, you, you're going to have, I mean, you have the case against Google ad tech, you have the uh, Utah Sean Reyes case against um, Google, which is going to be part of the trial in June. And that's 37 AGs. And it also even, to be frank, addresses the bandwidth problem. I mean, you know, as a, as a company, we looked for, you know, we've worked with these AGs. We, some of them have higher aspirations. They want to do more. They, they value being that on the cutting edge. And many of the big state ones have colossal budgets. I mean, I don't know the specifics around like either California or New York's budget, but I know that General James has a lot of people. <laughs> so I think that just enables them, especially collectively when they group together to act. Yeah, and also, the, I think, um, well, I know a lot of the states are hiring outside uh, law firms to do these cases for them, so they're definitely equipped for battle. And as an aside, um, a lot of the states are actually using baby FTC acts, 
in ways that the that people are doubtful that the FTC can use the original FTC Act. So I do find that personally humorous to me. If I could now circle back to something we left alone entirely, but I'm gonna do it, contextualize it a little bit. Uh, we haven't talked really about section one, but uh, I wanted to go ahead and sort of fold that into a discussion of what you see in private causes of action, private claims, uh, whether they're B2B, whether they're class actions, um, some of this is obviously section two type of conduct that we're seeing and that's you know, very, very prominent, but if you could, you know, maybe make up for the fact that I forgot to do section one in the comments, <laughs> that'd be great. I will say in the section one context, I mean, when I started litigating cases, it was almost all price fixing, not almost all, that's probably an overstatement, but a lot of price fixing or output reduction cases. And some of that flowed from the aggressive criminal you know, enforcement, you have a lot of follow on cases, you know, you see less of that today. And part of that's just a function of we don't have the big um, follow on cases that are happening. I think the no poach cases are happening as a follow on matter. But um, just practically speaking, the damages are often much less than they are when you have a uh, very, you know, a commodity that's sold all over the world. And if you assign a 10% overcharge to it, you've got $10 billion pretty quick. Um, and that's a motivator for plaintiff's cases. So my observation has been that it's less of the price fixing cases. There is more of the no poach cases. And then, you know, a lot of more exclusive dealing type cases and things like that, often in the tech context where um, there is, you know, this interest and we'll see how it plays out to see what kind of class action theories can be made out of, out of tech theories. Um, one thing that I think is undeniable is there's a ton of private money out there to sue people. <laughs> and it's, um, it's an interesting thing to me to see where and how that will develop over time as you have these litigation funders that are willing to fund cases. I think there's somewhat of a pinup you know, market demand that hasn't really found its way into the cases because you don't have as many follow-on cases from these cartels, which were the easiest cases to invest in. So I think you're going to see some more creative theories over time just because there are resources to do this. Um, but my observation is this really has been a shift away from your basic price fixing cases to other types of theories, not that they've gone away, but they aren't the predominant form of what at least I'm seeing in the section one context. I'd be curious as to other views as well. I agree a hundred percent. And I, I wonder if that is because there's a lot more compliance training. And so companies are better, you know, they know not to price fix, though I suspect they've always known that. Um, I, I think it's a real, it's, it's a, um, it's a real indicator that the, the, the private class actions do follow the federal agenda, right? And in, in, in an institutional way, right? Because as, as Ryan was saying, I agree. When I was a baby antitrust lawyer, it was a lot of section one price fixing class actions, sort of interesting legal issues, sort of, but rinse, wash, repeat. <laughs> and, um, and a lot of them were follow-ons to a big DOJ cartel investigation or cartel investigation that leaked that may never lead to a guilty plea, but would spawn, you know, a section one case that would go on for seven years. And 
there, there was not, right, which is the critique now, there was not during that same period a look at big tech and Google and Apple. I mean, they were like, oh, there's something Section 80 going on there, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> like one's got, a, one's got a phone and one's got a search engine and they're about to collide. That's an antitrust issue. But nobody was focused on them at the time as things that needed regulating. So there weren't federal resources being spent on that. They were being spent on these big cartel investigations, but now those resources, I mean, I think it's just materially have shifted the, the people, what they do with the government. You've got a technology enforcement division at the FTC. You've got huge armies litigating these cases against Google at the DOJ and at the states. And so if they're not doing the cartel cases, they're not throwing off sort of the class section one cases. So um, I agree, there is a sort of an institutional shift, but I do think it is to some extent driven by sort of the federal agenda. And it's interesting because those are harder cases to bring from a class action standpoint. Class, the beauty if you're a class action lawyer of a section one case is you can fight about the damages, but class certification liability, it's all kind of easier if the conduct's there. Certainly if there's a guilty plea, it, you know, it's just, you know, have a fight about that. But these section one distribution cases, section two cases, you know, abuses of dominant platforms do not lend themselves to sort of easy fodder for class actions in the same way. So I think that in the agricultural area, you know, there's some class actions that are finishing up um, toward near the end. But I think a lot of the class actions that were popular and the follow-on cases, I think that many people that did the follow-on class actions weren't necessarily um, full-time antitrust lawyers. I think they were litigators and they already had, in general, a guilty verdict. So it was easier Oh, so it was <laughs> so it was easier um, to bring the plaintiff side of those cases. Antitrust lawyers might have been doing that. We're, well, we're doing the defense, but I think that that is uh, one difference. But I think really what we're seeing the Section One cases that are most interesting are being brought by competitors. That was actually going to be my follow-up. Talk to me about the B two B litigation that you're seeing and business to business and you know this it's is it a different world than it was in terms of being willing for example to sue big tech if you are medium tech or small tech well i think or, or any other industry i think in tech it's a, it's i have to be careful because where my firm is involved in some of those but i think it's um in order it, when smaller companies are suing big tech i think in general it's a matter of survival or a matter of growing the business so it's it's core to the business for a lot of those companies. And, you know, if it's not regulated, they don't really have much of a choice if they want to continue their growth or their business. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the, the calculation and Match has an ongoing case against Google going to be heard um, in June. Uh, there are a number of issues, but the biggest is one, no matter how successful you are as a medium to small size company, you're going up against companies that have a billion dollar a year legal budget alone. Um, so, you know, unlimited resources. And that's, that is daunting. They force you to go and only take action in specific courts because they, they, compel you to do that contractually. 
so that then becomes a, another part of how this is stacked against you. And then, you know, look, they'll hire and, and no critique of anybody here who works at law firms, but they'll hire an army of lawyers. I mean, all joking aside, I, I was in Louisiana at one point and contemplating moving legislation, but also, you know, what might happen if, if match were to go to court or seek, you know, injunctive relief that way. And one le member of the Louisiana legislature walked up to me and he goes, biggest, most important discussion I've ever had. I'm like, it's really not, sir, but respectfully, why do you say that? He goes, because three private jets flew in for this issue. Um, I think that's telling. On the other side of the equation also is if you believe you either have an existential threat to your existence or you just believe what you're doing is right, these companies have the ability on the backside of telling you and everybody else what kind of retaliation and retribution is going to happen. And they do it remarkably publicly. I mean, you know, I, I, I'll say for example, for example, I mean, you had Basecamp go up against Apple and, you know, everything, Apple doesn't want to talk about it, but then they have an agreement, Apple publishes that agreement, pushes it everywhere. On the Epic v. Apple, I mean, Apple's comments after the judge's decision that they were going to, you know, go their own way and then they went and got it stayed and they put out comments that well the head lawyer put out comments on a public blog that they were going to pursue this no matter what to the very end whereas they tend not to publish all sorts of things um in the netherlands where the law there's a quirk in the law that allows you if you are the subject of a regulatory investigation to have the entire matter sealed until everything is decided. Apple has used its right to keep everything sealed in that case. But in the Epic case, for example, they're publishing stuff about if you, small company, medium-sized company, ever want to do anything, we will retaliate against you. So those are all real world effects. It may, we'll see what a judge thinks of them. I mean, in the, in the June trial uh, that we're involved with, what, there's five complainants. It's gonna be seven, eight weeks fun with the jury. Gotta love a good antitrust case going for a jury. Um, but how that really plays out, because I do think if there is some change driven by the courts, it will have a seminal change on what happens. Because right now, everything is stacked against you if you want to challenge big tech. Yeah, I think it's interesting because if you look back, 
20 years, some enterprising lawyers convinced big corporations to opt out of class actions and start suing other big corporations. And I really think that was the begin of a, beginning of a mentality shift in companies when they realized they could actually profit from some of these cases. And I think um, in addition to what you're talking about on the, on the tech side, that culture has continued to shift slowly over time to where I think you have companies that are just culturally a lot more willing to take on business to business litigation, whether it's in the opt-out context or over a, over a business dispute. And I think those factors combined with the amount of money litigation funding there is out there, I think you're gonna see more business to business antitrust litigation going forward. We have about five minutes left. And so I guess this is your opportunity, each of the panelists, if you will uh, be willing to just sort of share, what do you see, what, what, what do you think is the next big thing? What's coming down the pike that we need to be aware of in the antitrust community uh, and, and you know, maybe in the tech space to the extent we can, can limit it there? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm not answering the question, I'm, I'm asking it. Uh, tech, Tech, because of the, the alacrity of change that happens more than any other field or entity that I've ever been involved with, I think is conti will continue to both test regulators, the courts, and the law. I mean, I, I was staff director of the Commerce Committee for McCain there was a United tried to merge with Continental and we decided to pass a resolution opposing it. And we got a vote and we essentially killed it just by expressing the view of the Senate. Now, I mean, but that, and you know, that even the merger was going to take a year plus to get through. Now, even if you were to take action like that, it's meaningless because Technology is changing, different players get in. In tech, you know, Netflix was the number one most downloaded non-gaming app in the world. Tinder replaced it. TikTok, I think, will soon replace it. I mean, these things are moving so fast. It's really difficult until we get some solid groundwork laid how, how we're going to deal with these things. Yeah, I mean, I, it may be obvious, but I think the next big thing are these decisions and these cases that have been filed, you know, including in the Google case, it'll go to trial next year. You know, presumably there'll be an appeal. We still talk about the Microsoft decision, you know, <laughs> as if it's like Supreme Court precedent. And, you know, I think you're going to have a similar thing with that. And then on the FTC versus Facebook case, I mean, there's some mm -hmm. fundamental issues that are at play. And these cases got huge fanfare when they were filed. But, you know, it takes time to get through the courts, but we're not too far away from, you know, actually having trials on some of these cases and getting decisions. It's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of that. But, I mean, everybody will be watching. Of course, on the legislative slide, you know, if anything beyond fundamental will come out in the U.S. Uh, remains to be seen. And, you know, the other thing to watch is the, the rulemaking process. And, and is that really going to get off the ground and affect tech in a major way? Sure, or well, so I was, I was going to say, um, I'm curious to see uh, if there, well, what, I think there likely will be, they've, they've certainly collected enough data to send out 
um, to proposed rulemaking or to start. So I think that will be interesting to see. I agree the decisions are very important. And I think legislation with big tech, I, I, I know there's, I think, what is it, 10 or 11 different potential antitrust, uh, different legislative things going on right now. But I think big tech, if anything, is one of the most likely to, to actually move forward because both parties seem to have um, something they don't like about big tech. So I think if something's <laughs> going to change, it will likely be in the big tech area. I don't know if the current laws as written um, and enforced by the courts, if I think that the current antitrust cases will be difficult to win in the courts um, with the precedent that currently exists. So the panel took all of my good ideas. So I'll go with one outlandish <laughs> provocative idea just to end it, which would be the provocative idea that we might have some appellate law on section seven of the Clayton Act, oh, um, which it's just, you know, mind blowing to a practitioner because the deals don't hang together. But now it seems we may just, you know, these cases may just keep getting litigated, you know, post-closing and the like. So, I mean, we could get federal appellate law. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of general dynamics. So, I mean, maybe in the next five years, we could get a Supreme Court decision on section seven, which I think, you know, I mean, that's one of the, the purpose stated purposes of bringing these cases is to make law and then assess whether it needs to be changed but um, you know the guidelines are guidelines promulgated by regulators and you know we do have a role for article three so I think you know more more law will be a good good thing um, with no offense to the district courts who have done a great job of developing all of the section seven law to the date and all of it but um, but I have some appellate law on section seven could be fun too Thank you. I think we have time for Q&A. Is that correct? Okay. So questions. Can't really get internet questions, I don't think. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's also true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. My 21-year-old son is taking industrial organization right now, and I'm sure he would have all sorts of things for us if we were watching. So. Anyone? Just wondering if you all could comment a little more on what uh, you expect from the guidelines or the revisions that we uh, expect to see drafts of here before long. <laughs> you know, I think um, I just, tried a case with somebody who's not an antitrust lawyer and I'll offer this comment. They were like, DOJ gets to make the rules and then go to court and say like, here's the rules that, you know, you should apply court. Um, look, I think in this environment, you're going to see a much more pro enforcement set of guidelines. Um, and I think the question is whether they reflect kind of a consensus view among the bar and, you know, the government and others or whether they reflect an enforcement philosophy. Um, I think things like alluding to before, what really is a price discrimination market? When can DOJ or FTC really challenge a certain set of customers in an overall market? I think that's a fundamental question. 
Um, the role of efficiencies, you know, there's a recent decision about that. I think that's going to be a fundamental question as well. Predicting where those questions um, will, will end up, I think, is uh, I, I will not do. But I think there are some real fundamental questions. And I think if it goes too far in a pro-enforcement environment, the risk is that courts will no longer treat them as an objective kind of steward of the law and as a guide on the law. I think that's a risk for the enforcers and taking the guidelines in a certain direction. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out um, from that perspective. I was at the, um, at the FTC during the, the last revision and there was a really, as I recall, very vigorous internal debate as to wanting to push the envelope on this idea of backing into market definition by finding competitive effects, which is sort of a more lazy way of saying price discrimination or customer discrimination, but finding an effect and then defining a market around it. And the current guidelines compared to the version before were definitely more fluid on that. But the, the, the challenge known internally at the time, and that still exists, is precisely what Ryan was saying, which is you still have to deal with the common law. And so you can only go so far in the guidelines unless you're just going to you know, explicitly take positions that are in conflict with the law around having to actually define a market and the like. But I would expect to see you know, more, um, more stretching of sort of that disconnect, more recognition of you know, yes, you still have to define a market, but, you know, maybe you can do it sort of more out of order. Um, and then the other, I think, would be, you know, just what constitutes an anti-competitive effect. Um, I think we're sort of seeing a preview of that in a lot of the merger investigations and sort of thinking about new theories beyond price and even innovation effects, but thoughts around labor, ESG, privacy, some of the things we've been discussing, you could certainly see a lot of that um, coming into play. And, I, again, that too could be interesting as compared to the law in terms of there is law regarding what a competitive effect is. It's an effect from a harm to competition and sort of trying to see those things link up. But I, I would expect to see more on that too. Y'all got two answers. That's a, that's a lot for that question. <laughs> uh, any other questions? Matt, Jenna, John, I know you have a question. Come on. Well, this, this question is just motivated because uh, I, I have a former student who just dropped by next to me um, who's just started at Jones Day, right? Uh, so I just thought I'd ask, um, does the current environment change the way you're, uh, you're training your, your entry-level associates? Um, when, I when I started out in antitrust, I felt my job was, uh, you know, figure out the antitrust laws, try to get my head around industrial organization, economics, um, and then, of course, the, the factual context of, of the matters we're working on. Does the, um, does the variety of, of theoretical possibilities now change that for your junior associates? Or is it kind of the, the same old, same old? You didn't review documents? Oh, of course, of course. That, was, <laughs> that, was that, that last Our copy is <laughs> dusty file cabinets. Great job. <laughs> Spreadsheets. I think the biggest difference is that we're in court a ton now and, you know, including litigated cases to trial and, you know, you have first years going to a trial or an injunction hearing within six months of joining and that's, you know, years ago that was just not the case as much. So I think that kind of real world getting to see these cases litigated is my observation of kind of the biggest 
the biggest difference. And it's, um, it's exciting, I think, to be a young antitrust lawyer. I mean, I'm joking about documents, that is part of it. But there is a lot more, I would call, action. I mean, the, we were laughing about the price fixing cases of old. Those would go five years, you know, and they had this cadence to them. People would review documents, get them out of warehouses, look at them from a box. <laughs> it was like crazy stuff. But now, I might crawl out. yeah, um, now I think there's just a lot of action and it really is an exciting, I think, an exciting time. I think the challenge is, you know, in the remote environment, which we could have a whole nother panel on, you know, how do you train younger lawyers? Um, but I think uh, a lot of action out there. So, and I, I also um, make my juniors learn a little bit about policy, because if you can figure out policy, you can figure out, you can prepare ahead of time where the agencies are likely to go with questions on mergers so that you can be prepared before it happens, if you know what their policy is and what their hot buttons are. Building on that, we are we talk a lot internally about helping our associates learn how to see around corners, mm -hmm. um, and you know that. And then also, I would say compared to, I was I, I came up in a, in a different market. I didn't start in D.C. I was a full time antitrust lawyer, but I was in Houston, and so we cross trained in Houston by necessity. I did merger work, I did litigation, I did criminal uh, and civil. And we're going, we're going back to that to some degree to get people exposure across the board. And we don't have a ton of young merger only specialists. And, and that may, there may have been a time where that was less, where that was more true that was hyper-specialized and, and I think not so much now. That's a good point. Yeah. I, and I think the other thing is just the constant conversation like this, but in, in our firms, I mean, I, I, six or seven years ago, if you had sort of a monthly DC antitrust lunch, you'd put together an agenda, someone would talk about a case, someone would talk about another case, an investigation, and that would be a robust agenda. I mean, now, and in part just to get people to come in, right, there's like a free lunch on Wednesday, there's no need for an agenda, and you could go two hours without even trying. And it's important, because like what's going on at the DOJ in one investigation could affect your strategy in another, you know, are you proposing a fix or not? Are you fixing it first? You know, or how are you dealing with the fact that the product hopping theory from pharma is being applied in tech context or not? Like just the trading of ideas, which is I have always to me has been like the most special, tremendous part of being a competition lawyer, the vibrancy of the exercise, I think is is like all the more important now than ever, like being connected to other lawyers and just knowing what's going on. Um, and it's, it's what makes it fun. Anything else? Oh, okay, you can hear me. Um, so I'm interested in, so I come from kind of a tech law and antitrust background, and I'm interested in whether there's a shift in the kinds of experts that get involved in cases and litigation from a sort of more economic uh, expertise towards a more computer science technical expertise, perhaps, um, and how you see that or whether there's a need for that. So... For, for me, and I am increasingly calling the question earlier whether we need an industry expert, mm -hmm. which historically you had your antitrust lawyer and you had your, you know, economic expert from one of the, you know, main consulting boutiques. Um, 
with their expertise in industrial organization and that was sort of it. And I, I think, um, you know, as we think about new types of conduct, understanding whether that conduct is the norm within an industry and what drives that conduct um, is drawing on more of a need for industry experts. And so certainly in the tech context, right, even just explaining technologies and the like, which sometimes you can do with, you know, business people or, you know, fact witnesses or the like, but I am seeing just from an expert perspective, more generally, a lot more discussion about bringing in industry experts, certainly for litigation, but even sooner. Yeah, we see that too. And in the cases we're involved in, you know, we prefer our own people, but you know, you go to court, people think, oh, they're, they're biased naturally. Um, but it's not just, okay, this is the economics. This is what the cost would or wouldn't be if X or Y hadn't occurred. It's, you know, it's technical things that either do or don't cause friction. So user warnings, user warnings that say X versus Y, and what's the friction involved? Um, the substitutability of offering a product one way or a different way. Um, you know, you can access it on your phone via app, but you know, is access on your phone via web the same product experience? Nothing to do with money or cost, much more dealing with the experience itself. And even in some cases, the technology, is the technology as robust on one or two other paths? So I, I think you're gonna see much more growth around and, and need for it around those areas. From my perspective, it's been a little bit different, um, maybe because of areas in which I've worked uh, recent piece of litigation I was involved in as a plaintiff's lawyer, um, let's just say that big tech made it really difficult for us to find an industry expert willing to speak that, <laughs> that was that, that was willing to speak on a particular topic. Um, but I mean, in, in seriousness, I think there, it's, it's not an equilibrium, right? And so David here at Econ One is competing for business with other economists. And you know, I, I've seen some specialization where a couple of the economists I have talked to have really started to pitch themselves as knowing not just the industrial organization at this 20,000 foot level, but I understand this aspect of two-sided markets, this aspect of, uh, of a, a particular dynamic. And so, you know, I, that doesn't keep you from hiring the industry expert if you can get them, because it really has gotten so complicated that uh, there are times where that's just an enormous way to clear the brush, especially, you know, in a litigated case. But I also see economists that are adapting, um, trying to, to position themselves uh, to specialize as well. I think when you're talking about platforms, two-sided markets, certain financial instruments, if you don't have an industry expert, it can be hard for judges to understand the crux and the difference of, of, of your case and why something is anti competitive or pro-competitive. And so for those types of um, litigated cases, we do get uh, experts. And even when you're going before the agencies in a second request where you may be sued, it's useful to have 
experts that can attest to sort of how the market functions because looking at it from the outside, antitrust lawyers may not have a complete understanding of the fulsome um, operation of the market. So I think in those matters, uh, people do get experts. Well, thank you so much to the panel for uh, giving your time and your wisdom. Thank you, this has been a fantastic experience. Hope you all had a good time and we appreciate it.